0: hello hello i'm sorry about that the the uh recorder that i have is uh, sometimes gets a little glitchy oh okay yeah so <laughs>
1: uh um if it's easy so, if it's easier i have um i can't have a recorder on my phone so i mean um if you want to call me back i can turn it on that way in case you need a backup. Um.
0: No, I think this is fine. We'll be good. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. So, how are you?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. You know, I was feeling a little rushed, but <laughs>
1: but it's okay. Um, Making sure my dog wasn't... <laughs> what would you say? I was making sure my dog wasn't... I have a dog wandering around. I was making sure he wasn't going to... Or make noise he's good <laughs> he's good okay yeah okay, good good
0: um so I was wondering if you could uh just tell me a little bit about
1: yourself you know like how did you get into film critiquing so I've always been a, a big movie fan and was usually smarter than most of the people I went to school with about movies because i pretty much consumed everything. Uh, my my mom thought it was weird that I wanted to see American Beauty for some reason at the age of eight. I can't tell you why I wanted to see it, but I did. Um, so I've always been a movie fan, and I never really thought it was anything, you know, that could turn into anything where I could make money. Um, so in high school, uh, actually at my my senior prom of all places, somebody had said that, they had seen an ad on Craigslist looking for movie critics. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking, okay, well, I have nothing but time. So, you know, I'll check it out. And I ended up getting a job with a small company that actually paid. Um, And I did that for about 10 years up until last year when they unceremoniously fired me. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of sucked, but it ended up being for the best because Mm -hmm. by that point I had been, writing i had created a blog i had been covering film events and and other things so when i finally decided okay well i need to find a way to supplement my income um i i actually found that i was being grossly underpaid by, by this site for 10 years so it ended up being beneficial um and it i just it's a job i just kind of fell into really um and and now it's it's something i love but it, it consumes so much of my time. So I, I'm one of those where I have, a, I have a day job, but I'd love to be able to write full time. But unfortunately, you know, r- the writing game is very unwieldy finance-wise. So it's, it's one of those things where I have to just juggle constantly. But, you know, I, I love it. So it is what it is. <laughs> I definitely feel you on that. This podcast
0: is is definitely a labor of
1: love. Oh, yeah. All podcasting. I do a podcast as as well. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I do a a classic film based podcast. um, And then I do uh, a regular film podcast with a a group of ladies talking about film. And, you know, I realized I'm like, look, I'm making money. I'm just going to pay somebody to do the things that I don't want to do with this podcast. (laughs) So, so yeah, I've, I found a, a lovable. I call I call them a lovable Trump. I say that with love because they get paid. Um, who who edits my podcast for me? So I feel a little bit better. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm telling you, outsource. It's the best thing.
0: <laughs> I don't know if I can do that right now.
1: Exactly. Know. Yeah it took it took me. It took me a while to actually think, like, do I really want to pay somebody for something that I'm just too lazy to do myself? Like, I could do it if I really wanted to. Um, yeah, it, but it I'm It takes a lot. It, it does. Lot it really does. So when, when we all become millionaires, that's the first thing I, I recommend everybody do, hire somebody to edit your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, noted,
0: noted. Um, so I was wondering... Uh, if you could tell the people
1: just a little bit more about uh, those blogs that you have. So I I write pretty much everywhere. Um, you said blogs, right? Mhm mhm. Um, yeah, I.
0: Crooked Marquee and you have your own blog, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I write I I write for a bunch of places. Crooked Marquee. I've been published on Paste. I've been published on some School Rejects. Sean Deland. I am a one woman hustle. Um, and then, yeah, uh, about five years ago, I decided, because I wrote, was writing so much about contemporary films, and I really liked classic cinema, pre-1980s stuff. And so I figured, well, I'll start a blog. Um, and I started com, and I feel terrible because it's one of the first things that has fallen by the wayside as I've been writing and doing more uh, stuff with my with my writing career, but... I mean, people love it, and I love, I love old Hollywood, and I love classic cinema, so I'm hoping I can come back to it with a vengeance, because people, yeah, yeah. it's its kind of been my calling card for so long. Mm,
0: mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting website, and um, I just think, like, the juxtaposition of classic movies and movies from now is just one of those things that people need to see, because it really tells it really is telling of what our society has changed from you know the past to now
1: yeah you really can't enjoy film now unless you know where where film has started and and right. so much of of cinema is just repetition and repeating the same things at certain times so one of the things that i i always love to write about is showing how how much movies play into political context because the politics influences the culture, which influences the movies, which influence, it's a dialectic. So it's one of the things that I love to to deconstruct and usually get a lot of comments from people saying, I don't know what I'm talking about.
0: (laughs) Well, they're wrong because I believe what you have to say is really, really relevant and really significant. So One thing that I'd love to start out with is if you could tell us a little bit more about the tropes that you find in movies that have disabled actors, disabled uh, characters in them.
1: Yeah, um, writing about disability in in cinema has been something, it's another thing I just kind of fell into. Because most people Mm -hmm. that know me know, and it's something I, I, I tell everybody, I'm like, so... I'm probably the only disabled film critic that you know. Um, and and that's, that's kind of been, but I hadn't written about it um, because mostly I just figured, you know, eh, I, I like writing about other things. I would I want to write about stuff that, you know, relates to me. Nobody wants to know about me unless we're talking about, you know, people I love and then I share that with everybody. Um, so I decided to start writing about dis- disability in cinema because as I've gotten older <laughs> and have had to deal more with, how the disabled people are treated in, in the world, specifically from, like, a governmental standpoint. Um, I realize that a lot of people are just grossly misinformed about disability because of movies. Movies are a great thing, but if you're yeah. trying to learn anything, whether it's about disability, sex, crime, any of that, it is always a bad way to start. Um, movies lie. So when it comes to, to disability in cinema, there's a couple big things that I I really hate. And really, at this point, I've just kind of, you know, we all expect regular actors to play disabled people. That's just something, it's something that I've kind of put on the back burner because I think there are other things at work that are worse than that. So one of the, the big tropes that I really hate is that it's always based on a true story. If you look at, at cinema and, and disability in cinema, most movies about disabled people are based on true stories about how a character nine times out of 10, who is a white male has overcome this, this adversity that was considered a death sentence and how he persevered. And I, I say that a lot of that is very, very methodical in, in what Hollywood green lights, um, because it's easy to tell a true story. You're not going to critique somebody's experience. Um, You can critique it once it becomes common. You know, if everybody's experience is based on a true story, you know, you have to start wondering why that is. Um, Why are all these movies about white males who are disabled? Why are there not movies about disabled women or people, disabled people of color? You know, why are, why are, why is it always a white male? Um, And and another thing that I really, really, this is just more of a personal irritant than anything else. If you can really tell what directors or screenwriters have done research and which ones haven't, predominantly you're looking at wheelchairs. If you see a character who's wandering around in a big, bulky hospital wheelchair, that's probably because the director or screenwriter doesn't really know anything about custom wheelchairs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: because sitting in a hospital wheelchair, if that's your primary mode of moving around your house, is both inconvenient and uncomfortable. You are not mm-hmm. going to want to sit in that 24-7. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that's just, that's just me usually critique. Like nobody Everybody's like, I'm not going to notice that. Well, you should notice that, because that's not what disabled people wander around in. Um, so there's those little things that I nitpick but really, it's just the grand concept of wanting audiences and critics to ask, why are we telling the same story? And and what are, what are studios thinking that you are going to buy? Because unfortunately, especially when it comes to disabled cinema or movies about people who are disabled, they're marketed towards able-bodied people who are not right. disabled. They're not marketed to me. They're marketed right. to the 99% that they assume are going to be in that theater. They're assuming most able-bodied people are stupid um, by that same token, because they're thinking that you're going to watch this and you're going to be so overcome with emotion because the intention of these movies is to remind you normal, you know, you just normal person in the audience to appreciate Your able-bodiedness because one day could be viciously taken away from you and you could end up in a wheelchair and the only thing, the only option you have is is to kill yourself. Because nine times out of ten, most disabled movies are about the only agency we have is choosing when we're going to die. The -hmm. whole concept is just so insidious.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I completely agree. They don't show movies about people who are born disabled. They don't show people like developmentally disabled there's no nuance to what we what we see and yeah it can be really frustrating and it's it's also a little bit morbid isn't it that we have to see characters that with their only agency as to the you know when they can figure out when they when they know they can die right
1: yeah exactly and that's why you know you bring up the the part that you know always irritates me i was born disabled And yet you always see these movies about some, again, average white guy who is just super awesome living his life. And he's (laughs) mowed down in the prime of his youth by, by something that puts him in a wheelchair, usually, or he loses a limb or something. Um, And, and my whole concept is with that, I've actually kind of coined a term, um, which my friends have been using too, because they've started to notice it in movies, which I call the able-bodied buffer, which is the concept that, Studios assume that audiences are not going to be able to relate to a person who is born disabled. How are you going to relate to this mysterious person that is born this way? You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. apparently a mystery. We're aliens, I guess. Um, so we have to show that this person is, is the able-bodied person in the audience, that this person is just like you, who's been doing everything and has been struck down by this by this thing. Um, and, and that's why I think we don't get movies about people disabled from birth because you know the studios are assuming that's not a relatable thing you know nobody's going to understand and I, I think by that token that's like saying you know nobody's going to relate to a person because they're they're gay or they're not white I mean you know relatability is something that isn't limited to just a normal able-bodied white male you know we relate mm-hmm. to things all the time that we don't you know that aren't in our experience, but we still relate to them.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so could we talk about Get Out? Sure. <laughs> yeah, because I I really love the article that you wrote about about race relations and how it sort of overlaps with uh, disability in the film. Um, Thank you so
1: much. <laughs> you're welcome.
0: Um I mean, most people recognize get out as you know this intensely psychological horror film about race relations, right but how does uh how does the portrayal of like jim uh sort of um, how does how does it show the intersections of race and disability
1: so when when I saw get out i I thought it was really intriguing that there's the Stephen Root character is blind and his, his whole intention is, and I hate to spoil get out for anybody who hasn't seen it, but if you haven't, then what's your problem? You should go watch it right now. It's awesome. mm-hmm. um, but his whole goal is to appropriate um, the main character's body because he wants his eye quote unquote. Um, and by that, you know, I love what Jordan Peele does with the use of, of words in this movie because the assumption is is that this person is going to be both able to see finally, and also going to have this uncanny talent that is specific to the main character. Um, and if you look at the, the history of of cinema, when it looks at both African Americans and disability, you mm-hmm. they kind of have the same interlap. Um, if anybody's watched ABC Speechless, they have a great discussion about the mystical Negro trope and the, what I call the, um, the, well, what everybody calls kind of the tiny Tim character, um, where both characters are considered these saintly, simple minded, magical figures that provide nothing but inspiration and happiness and then die. um, So that the regular people will learn to appreciate their life. You see it in the tiny Tim character. You see it in the John coffee character in the green mile. Um, So, you know, to have, a disabled character and an African-American character and get out, you still get, Jordan Peele doesn't shy away from showing that even in that situation, there is a power dynamic. It is still different if the disabled person is white versus if if he was black, which mm-hmm. having been on Twitter and, and talked to so many um, activists for the, disa- the disabled community who are of color, I mean, it is definitely, I am very fortunate as a disabled woman who to be you know there's definitely privilege for me um compared to other people and so i love how how get out is is still talking about that even as a white disabled character this guy's still kind of an ass he still -hmm. wants to appropriate something because he assumes that there is an advantage he's not seeing an advantage in being disabled he's seeing an advantage in being this guy um which is so ironic and interesting um and the the concept that both of these characters have to fight it out for dominance, even though they're both incredibly marginalized in cinema and presented as very stereotypical characters in, in the cinematic history, they're allowed to kind of have this this back and forth together, um, which I thought was, was great. And I don't know if Jordan Peele even noticed that. I'd like to think that he did, because that would just mean that he's, he's more receptive to disability um, than, than the average director and screenwriter is because I think he does he does a lot in terms of showing that we as disabled people can still be flawed. We can still be flawed humans. We still have privilege depending, you know, race still can come in, it come in as a factor. Um, but at the same time, we still exist. I mean, Jordan Peele isn't perfect. This is still a character that was able to see for a certain amount of time and then lost it. So he's still comes into the film as a uh, regular sighted person who is disabled. So it's not a hundred percent perfect, but it's still something. You know, the horror genre I've said is doing disability a lot better than than other other genres than than the dramatic genre is right now.
0: Mhm. Hmm. Wow. Well, I mean that's a surprise to hear because you know when i when I think about disability and horror i still I still see those tropes happening, and uh yeah i just um I'm surprised to hear you say that. Could you tell me a little bit more
1: yeah, so I mean, and again none are, no movie when people ask me you know oh, what's the best representation of disability in cinema for you I say well none of them really, yeah, nothing right. is perfect at this point exactly but. What I love that the horror genre is doing is taking disabled characters and actually doing something with them. So I think of something like um, the movie Hush that came out, I think, about a year or two ago, which is about a a deaf woman. Yes, the actress is not deaf herself. Um, So, again, it's not flawless. But if you watch a horror movie where it's a woman alone in a cabin in the woods, you're kind of anticipating that this woman has a victim on her head, whether or not she is able to hear. And yet this is a character that is able to persevere. We watch her adapting to her environment. So we we see her doing mundane things like cooking and having to explain to other people why certain things in her house are the way they are um, in terms of showing adaptation. Um, Little things like that I think are really good. The one one series that I'm really surprised with is um, the Chucky series, which I was actually talking on Twitter about the other day. Um, mm-hmm. If anybody's watched Curse of Chucky or Cult of Chucky, again, the actress is not disabled. She is able-bodied. But it is a movie about a disabled female protagonist, disabled from birth, um, who is who is um, paralyzed, uses a wheelchair, mm-hmm. and is actually, you know, uh, uh, the center of her own story, able to make decisions. In the, the film that just came out, I think a couple weeks ago, um, Cult of Chucky, She's actually allowed to have like sex with a, a a regular guy and allowed to be a sexual figure, which if you look at the history of, of the few films that have disabled women, there are not many. Mm-hmm. The concept is is that they're not sexual beings. You know, nobody's gonna wanna going wanna get near that. Um, you know, again, the, the white male studio mentality just rears its ugly head. But this mm-hmm. this main character is. Um, so I mean it's not flawless, but We're actually telling original stories, you know, stories. Somebody is actually, a screenwriter is writing down something from their head. You know, they're not making, looking at the Whitney of true stories out there and trying to come up with something. They're trying to come up with something original. And it's not 100% perfect, but I am just amazed that we're actually seeing somebody trying to make an effort.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Um. You know I would never think of the Chucky series
0: as being something that's like um progressive <laughs> i know <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the word <laughs> um yeah i honestly i've i've uh, I haven't had the pleasure of seeing any of the Chucky movies, but i uh I'll definitely check it out now.
1: Yeah, yeah, the first the first three, I mean, they have no relevance to the topic, but, but they're still fine. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the last two, I was really surprised that, you know, and, and it's something, if you watch, there's a, a great documentary called Cinemability that looks at the history of disability in cinema. And they actually interview, uh, I think it's William H. Macy. And he was talking about how, you know, he's writing a script for a movie and he never wrote a disabled character. Not because, you know, he doesn't like disabled people, but because he never thought to, to write one. And that's what I always find interesting, is that we only ever, screenwriters only ever think of disability if it's a true story about a white guy. You know, they, they're just not thinking that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I want, you know, that's what I love about the horror genre right now, is that at least a screenwriter is sitting down and thinking of somebody like that. You know, I, I, that's what I want. I want more screenwriters to actually think like, am I thinking about just the same old type of you know someone like me? You know, I know writing one oh one is write what you know, but I kind of want screenwriters to start writing about, you know, maybe maybe some of them they've always wanted to see in, in cinema, but they haven't. You know, they have they have power there. They should they should think outside the box.
0: Right, right, you're so right. And in twenty seventeen, I mean it's not that difficult, is it?
1: No, exactly. I mean, there are enough disabled people now out and about in the world, you know, it's not like, but even if you look at, you know, the, the post-World War II film history, you know, you got a lot of disabled characters, and I say a lot, and I can only think maybe about three or four, um, you got more than you get now, um, coming out of, of World War II, but you were getting original stories about disabled characters, like, you know, a great example is Best Years of Our Lives which actually had a disabled actor um, who won an Academy Award for, for playing a disabled character. And, you know, things like that, you were, people were just, the, the idea would be that you wouldn't think of disabled people because in the 40s, most disabled people were not out and about in the world, um, unfortunately. Nowadays, you can see a disabled person, you know, if you're, if you're anywhere, any street corner. There should be no reason we're still limited to you know prestige fare uh, and hope. Hopefully, you know Eddie Redmayne gets an Oscar or something. You know that's. I'm, I'm hoping we're moving away from that just a little bit.
0: Yeah, definitely. Me too. I mean, I think the first movie I had ever seen with like a uh, sort of a dynamic um, looking disabled
1: character was Forrest Gump. And, yep, that's just, that would be my my gateway, too. Oh, really?
0: Really? Yeah. Okay, could you could you tell me a little bit about what you thought?
1: So, yeah, I remember, and again, Forrest Gump, I got for Christmas, and I cannot remember if I had seen the movie before that, and my parents bought it for me, or if they mm-hmm. just blind bought it for me, and then I wonder why they saw of that. Um, I don't know. But, um, yeah, uh, looking at the Lieutenant Dan character, which has kind of become a stereotype in itself – yeah. It was and and again, Robert Zemeckis, that is not a flawless um interpretation that he he's created there um but but watching that character, there's a moment in Forrest Gump that has always stuck with me where he's kind of telling um uh Tom Hanks's character about a priest telling him that you know if he prays hard enough, one day he'll be able to walk beside God in the kingdom of heaven, and that always stuck with me mostly because I've had that speech given to, to me before. And, uh, it's, yeah, I've had so many wonderfully nice people totally stick their foot in their mouth when it comes to me. Um, <laughs> and even though the character is falling into a, a stereotype that came out in the late 80s, early 90s, which is like the bitter veteran. You saw it with, like, Born on the Fourth of July as well. But it's still bringing up the fact that most people don't know how to deal with the disabled. You know, they don't know how to talk to them. They don't know what to say to them. And even though the character is this bitter drunk character, there's still an edge of showing the world is very unaccepting of him. You know, you see mm-hmm. things, whether it's him trying to slide down, you know, a steep hill in the snow, you know, people not seeing him when they're, he's trying to cross the street. For me, the little things, that show just how people don't see, you know, it is, I think it's is very effectively showcased in the film, even though the character is kind of stereotypical in its own right.
0: Right, right. That's great. I mean, the little things that you don't see, it's, it's a really interesting statement because, uh, again, like I'm thinking about my own... Um, I don't know the words, stereotypes about uh, the horror genre, genre is that uh, it's not very nuanced. To me, sometimes I think that one of those stereotypes that people have of horror is that it's very, like, you know, blunt and over the head. And yeah. kind of, I don't want to be, I don't want to say a pun, but, you know, like, bashes you over the head with its uh, sentiments.
1: Yeah, and a lot of movies do that. And we've gotten worse, I think, as we've gone along. Most people, you know, nowadays I've actually talked to people, um, fellow critics and, you know, audiences don't really like to think anymore, uh, whether that's because of our current political climate or or just, you know, desensitization. We really don't like thinking man's movies as much. Um, And, you, you know, for me, it's watching some of these, Disabled, you know, movies about disabled people. I call it the disabled genre. It has become a genre in its own right, for better or worse. Um, and and watching so many of them at this point, I really we're getting hit over the head. We've we've slowly moved out of one genre into just this over encompassing. You know, we have to we have to dumb it down t- for you. Um, and and a great example is what I just saw a couple days ago. I, I went and saw Breed which is the Andrew Garfield um, movie where he plays um, a, a polio victim. Well, I don't want to say victim, polio person, person suffering from polio. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just sat there and I knew this movie. I, I naturally, if you if you look at my tweets online, I naturally go into these uh, movies very um, irritated. Because I'm, mm-hmm. a, youth, I'm yeah. usually tasked I'm usually tasked with going to review them as again the the one disabled critic for a lot of the sites that I contribute to. They always want kind of like, You you know, you know, you know, go see it, let us know what you think. I'm like, Yeah, but I'm gonna be mad. Um <laughs> so I went I went and I saw it and, and I think we've come to the point at this point where it just becomes let's hit the audience over the head with sentiment. You know, and, and hokiness and loveliness um and so you get a movie like Breathe where it's beautiful people film beautifully. But you're watching a very reductive look at disability wherein Andrew Garfield's character, you know, has to, he's, he's the magical person that has escaped the polio ward. He's able to travel and all this stuff. And yeah, you see a couple things that limit him. But it's never financial or you know uh, or any. It's usually just like funny things, like haha, the motor on his wheelchair doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, how did he get to Africa? I don't have money to go to Africa. Like, <laughs> I want to know what he's doing. Um, and little mm-hmm. things like that. But it's the concept of you know, let's just show a love story. What's your love story between these two beautiful people? How does this beautiful woman? live with a man who cannot, you know, uh, be, be a full man to her. It's, it's really right, just right. crappy, crappy storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. And we continue it. I mean, we, we continue that, that concept um, of showing these disabled figures as A, non-sexual, B, mm-hmm. non, um, y- you know, the, the concept is is all we, we can do, we're like the Kenzian orphans. We give you a wink and a smile, and we send you on your way happy. Um, and I, I would love to not see that ever again. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, me too. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why I didn't. I wasn't really attracted to seeing breathe because I uh, definitely got that vibe from the trailer and
1: from just the uh, the ads that they had. But... It, it didn't make me as mad as me before you, but it, it was up there.
0: yeah i've heard me before you is pretty terrible
1: it's it's probably the worst of of the worst i've seen a lot of bad ones but it's it's up there in terms of both the theater going experience and 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 having to actually watch it were i think just two halves of a really crappy (laughs) hole
0: definitely um so i was wondering if we could go back a little bit and maybe talk, uh, because I know for a lot of people, um, horror is one of those things that they saw as kids and then maybe don't really revisit again. But uh, I was wondering if there was, like, a film that you watched as as a kid and saw maybe a disabled representation in there, and, like,
1: what do you think about how things have changed? So... I think for the horror genre specifically, we've only gotten, I would say, better, um, both, you know, in terms of portrayals of women, portrayals of minorities, portrayals of disability. For me, kind of the the pace, the the by zero for me in terms of the horror movie that, that left me with the lasting impact, that scared me the most, is often one that I don't think a lot of people really understand why – it frightened me to no end. That's Pet Cemetery. Um, mm, from from the yeah. from the early eighties. Um, the Stephen King adaptation. And mm-hmm. I remember seeing Pet Cemetery when I was probably too young to, to see it. Uh, my parents were very primitive. <laughs> and if anybody's seen Pet Cemetery or read the book, there's a character named Zelda who is the sister of the main female in the film. Um, she has spinal meningitis. Mm-hmm. And the movie, they get a, a male actor to dress up as, as Zelda, um, very emaciated, and the way it's, uh, I want to say it's Mary Lambert, who's the director, the way she films it, and the way the character looks, the way the character sounds, it, it's still terrifying. I am almost 30 years old, this movie's still I will not watch it by myself. And I think <laughs> I, I actually wrote about, about watching Pet Sematary as, as a kid and as an adult and trying to figure out why does it scare me so much? Why does that character more than anybody else scare me? And I think it's because it's the first time I ever thought that being disabled was going to be terrifying. And, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. My parents were very pretty much they're like you're in a wheelchair you know what you get treated the same way as your brothers you you you, you can't ride a horse but we're not going to give you any other special privileges uh, mm-hmm. so, so I was very fortunate in that regard it never really bothered me other than the times when I would get hurt and I would end up at the hospital being disabled was really just more of an inconvenience than anything else and when I mm-hmm. watch Pet Cemetery now and I've read stories about people who have my disability who are you know, have issues with their spine or issues with their, their bones just severe deformities. I think it plays on to that, that my, my, you know, inner fear that I never thought was going to bother me, this, this concept of maybe that's what I'm going to look like one day. You know, as a small child, you watch this and you're thinking, okay, well, I have an issue, you know, I'm not like, uh you know, a, a normal, healthy person I, I you know I am healthy but I, I have this disability you know maybe that's going to be me maybe that's what I have to look forward to in the next you know 10 20 years I think on an elemental level it really just bothers me and it really sticks with me even now you know I still I you know I've kind of developed a hypochondriac personality mm-hmm. um I think that that plays into it I think pet cemetery I think really ruins me mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i um
0: i read that article that you wrote about uh your disability actually being on display in unbreakable and yeah that, yeah you're you're basically talking about how uh this movie didn't leave you angry as as maybe someone might have expected.
1: Yeah, I, I remember when Unbreakable came out. Um, and mm-hmm. everybody, if anybody's seen Unbreakable, and my channel using osteogenesis imperfecta, which is brittle bone disorder, which is what I have. Um, for mm-hmm. the Samuel L. Jackson character, Mr. Glass, which just makes me roll my eyes. Um, <laughs> because that, that's kind of what we get labeled as. We're children of glass. Um, so when when the movie came out, I didn't see it. And I had no interest in seeing it. And the entire year that that movie was out, I thought people who, when I would tell them what I had, they would be like, oh, like Unbreakable. And just hearing that, I was like, no, it's not like Unbreakable. I'd never <laughs> seen this movie, but I automatically did not want to see this movie because of it. And I had avoided it up until last year. Oh. Um, when I, yeah, when I finally decided, okay, you know, what? enough time has passed, M. Night Shyamalan had made split which is going to tie into a continuation of the Unbreakable franchise, I guess now it's a franchise, um, with a, a film called Glass. So I'm anticipating people asking me about it again when this movie comes out. But I finally watched it and it's fine. I mean it's yeah, it's not one of those movies where I get really mad because M.I. Chamlin is reliant on the basic tropes of, of my disability. Um mm-hmm. he's kind of blending fact, you know, so so the Samuel L. Jackson character has elements of one level of my disability, but then he also has elements of a level, because there's, there's, I think, five or six or seven levels of, of OI. Um, so M. Night's kind of playing with, with um, medical fact there, um, but he's still in that wheelhouse. He's not making really gross generalizations. Um, there's also a scene where where he falls down a flight of steps, which for me... Having um, hurt myself in numerous ways, that just, like, terrified me again on an elemental level because I just felt every single thing. um, It feels very tactile in that regard. So it didn't bother me. I think what bothers me is people's response. And that's why I, I continue to write about disability because I think so many people learn about disability from watching movies. And they assume that that's the code of conduct. You know, this is how you talk to a disabled person. Or, you know, they watch a movie, they watch something like Unbreakable, and they assume they know everything about me. And and I kind of, I write about movies and how disability is both positive and negative in them in the hopes that people will be more open-minded and both less likely to say something stupid when they're talking to a disabled person. You know, that's exactly what I want to do with this show. Mm -hmm. exactly yeah that's that's why we need more you know it's it's so funny I was um I was telling somebody I go to film festivals and Mm -hmm. you know people people organizers and all of that tend to fall over themselves because they really don't anticipate a film critic being disabled Um, I've interviewed I've interviewed filmmakers And, you know, we've met at places and, you know, the table is is elevated. And, I, you know, they Mm -hmm. they freak out. They're like, oh, my gosh, we'll we'll move you over here. I'm like, you know, you don't have to freak out. You just have to be more open-minded of the person that you're going to meet might not look like you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Suddenly you become this object. Exactly. Suddenly you become this, like, totem, like, I've never seen this alien being before and I must figure out how to deal with it. And nobody wants to be offensive, but, you know, by by not prepping, you know, it's why when I meet somebody, I don't ever have a, a picture in my mind of who I'm meeting because it's probably going to be completely different. And I wish more, more able-bodied people tended to think, like, maybe the person that I'm going to meet might not be able-bodied. It happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's, I mean, there's part of
0: the reason why... I feel like people don't even consider adaptation is because, again, you're right. We don't really see uh, nuanced portrayals of ourselves, and it's unfortunate that people, you know, consider that, uh, that entertainment. And um, I just, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, um, you said that you were trying to go to a film festival, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I've I've uh, well I've, I've covered film festivals before, and I'm, I'm currently prepping to cover AFI Fest in LA uh, in about two weeks. So yeah, I I've, I've slowly gotten into traveling more. <laughs> okay,
0: okay. Um, so for the sake of this uh, this podcast, it's called Power, Not Pity, right? Um, one thing that I like to ask people at the end is what's your disabled power? What do you think is uh, the thing that gives you the most energy or what, you know,
1: like what is the thing that maybe gives
0: you the most agency?
1: So for me, I think it's just, you know, doing what I've been doing, which is writing. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's the concept of having uh, a voice that people seem to like, um, which Usually, if it's listening to my podcast, I try to mitigate that because I know I have the voice of the chipmunk. Um, <laughs> but, but just people who, who read my words and find something new in them, whether they agree with them or not. I've gotten many a person who disagrees with what I've said. And, you know, for me, having to deal with a thousand people that say I'm an idiot who don't know what I'm talking about makes that one person, you know, I, I've been fortunate to have people that have said I've never thought of cinema that way. Until you brought up how disabled people are represented, or you know, I've I've never thought of becoming a film writer until I realized that you know you you were doing all these things and you have this wheelchair and you're able to do it. I usually hate when people say you know my life is better because I know you exist, um, but <laughs> in this case, you know if if I can make people learn something new about movies and disability. And hopefully, you know, there's a, you know, a disabled person out there who thinks that maybe they want to be a film writer and they don't think they can. Um, You know, hopefully, hopefully, in this instance, I will be happy with being a source of inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. I feel the
0: same way. So, I guess, lastly,
1: do you have any plans for Halloween? I I do actually. I usually just hang around the house. Um I have I have three dogs, so uh my mom and I like to dress them up. Um <laughs> torment them. So so we'll probably be watching uh, uh scary movies, probably loading up on candy. Um <laughs> and I get to work in the morning. So, so yeah, not a, not a whole lot of exciting stuff, but some some stuff. Mhm. Okay. Um
0: well yeah, I think that's it me. Um,
1: is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, I, I will throw out in case uh, uh, anybody wants to follow me, I'm on Twitter mm-hmm. at journeys underscore film. Um, you can find all my writing, a uh, multitude of places, like Twitter usually um, where it's at. And if you want to learn more, I'm actually raising some money right now to go to AFIFS because travel is expensive. Um, so if you would like to learn more or maybe Throw out a donation. I never expect them, but it's always great. Um, you can go to GoFundMe dot com slash send to AFI. It's all on Twitter, so I, I promote it endlessly.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, so, okay, uh, I know that you have two two podcast shows, right? Yes, that's what you that's you told me, and I was wondering. I I have just started, you know, like you're my second guest. And uh, I was just wondering if you could tell me, you know, like a few tips.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So, so I do um, usually the, the podcast that I do, um, which is my classic film podcast, um, mm-hmm. I usually I'm one, I'm, I find guests and all of that. So what I tend to do is, is Twitter. Twitter is a great resource. but Then I'm also part of some um, actual, like, Facebook and um, Slack groups. So if you look up, like, Podcast Party on Facebook, um, they have great resources, and there's always people who, who – the hardest thing for me is finding guests because you never know who wants to actually talk. Uh, and then um, I'm also part of a Slack group called Lady Pod Squad, so it's all female podcasters, um, and we can all, you know – Join that group. Yeah, exactly. It? It's great. It's a great resource. Um, so those are the things that I that I try to do. Um, and, and always, you know, I try to time it to stuff that's relevant, whether it's an anniversary or, you know, um, authors are a really good resource. If you want guests, like they're always open to talking about stuff, um, if they have books, especially. So, so for me, it's just trying to stay on schedule is always hard, but, you know, being a a one woman podcaster, you know, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades and networking is like the, the end all be all. Yes
0: it really has been
1: it really is you know whether it's promoting your show on twitter and letting people know you're recording letting people know it's out letting people know yeah, i mean you're constantly just going back and forth with with social media Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. i'm definitely feeling that social media fatigue you know yeah how do you, you yeah.
1: mitigate that <laughs> oh my gosh so i i'm one of those with like my my podcast um I have everything on like one Twitter app on my phone so I can go back and forth. Um, my podcast has probably the least active Twitter because I usually only tell people like I'm recording and it's out. Um, I, Cause I, I realized that a lot of podcast interaction comes more from my personal Twitter than the mm-hmm. podcast Twitter. Um, so that tends to be kind of the best way where I'll, I'll promote the podcast via Twitter, but actually like trying to gather guests, cultivate ideas actually Mm -hmm. show there's a live body with the podcast that all goes through my personal I just think it's for me it's just easier I also have more followers on my personal than I do on my my um, podcast one so Mm -hmm. I know more people are going to have eyeballs on it
0: yeah yeah I'm finding that my that my personal account is sort of turning into my my Facebook account my like uh, Power not pity facebook account
1: and it's it's really interesting and strange <laughs> exactly are you are you weekly or are you biweekly i'm biweekly that 's the easiest way i i'm bi i, I can 't do i do a weekly podcast with um with the, my rotating round table of uh female uh writers we it 's called citizen dame and mm-hmm. we do weekly but i don't i 'm just there to talk so I have like one of my one of my friends edit it and then we come out, you know, it's, it's not a lot of editing. Um, so we put, we put work into it, but we don't put a ton of like overly methodical with my, my podcast that I do myself. I am like a nitpicker. Um, so (laughs) that's the, that's the only way I can, I could do it. I don't, I don't know how I could have the same methodical, like deliberate perfection for, for my, (laughs) for the podcast that I do weekly. I would just never, never be on time.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> it's you know, it's a very difficult game. You you have to ultimately get a team, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's really hard because you know, for for me, I I did the I do a podcast, my one podcast solo. I just I gather guests, and you need to have someone to talk off of. I mean, I don't know how anybody does like a solo podcast with just them talking. I I would go yeah. so nuts. But like, yeah, it really, it really helps if you have. You know, I know some podcasts that have, you know, social media managers and have professional editors and have all this, have these huge teams. And you know, I, it tends to make me a little bitter sometimes. Like you know, yeah. everybody asks me. I do a my my podcast at Ticklish Business, which is classic. Everybody says, oh, it's like re- you must remember this. I'm like, no, we're I'm not like that podcast. I'm my own separate thing even though that, that podcast is like got money behind it and a lot of people. And I tend to, I, I thought that by starting a classic podcast, like I would have a corner on the market. Even then I got bested. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's when, when somebody asked me, I, I say the same thing about podcasting that I say about writing. If you're trying to get into it for money, don't, don't do it because there's, you know, everybody asks me, oh, how do you get into writing and get paid for film, for film writing? I'm like, you don't. I'm all, there's no money. There's no money in film writing. I'm all, you know, or, 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 or being a film critic. I'm all, you have to be able to write about other things, you know, deep dives. Like what I did with Get Out. I'm all, I couldn't have reviewed Get Out and made, made money. I'm all, but <laughs> by talking, finding an angle and, you know, kind of he's supposed finding, trying to find a site that was going to pay me to write it. I'm like, you can make money. You just have to be very dogged. I'm all, same with podcasting. I'm all, you really have to do it because you, you want, you love it. And you want to create something that people will listen to. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's, that's how I feel about the show. I, I just really want to, you know, sort of put my community on and maybe. Exactly. And, and. Mine too. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that's, that's what I've been really happy to, to see because, you know, I, I grew up and I still, I live in a town where I don't see anybody who's in a wheelchair and, and where I live. Um, you know, I go to like big cities like L.A. Um, and I see people who are disabled all the time, but I don't have that here. Right? And, and really, you know, I'm kind of the token disabled person. Uh, in my graduating class, I was I was the one that like everybody you know was like Kristen such an inspiration. I'm like please stop using my name. <laughs> um, so so going on Twitter and and realizing that there was such a, a big disabled community, um, it was great to see because I was like finally you know we're we're finally kind of criticizing things that we've we've kind of lived with for years. Whether I'm I'm seeing somebody you know. Talk about accessibility, or the fact that you know, social security is like a horrible, horrible death pool. Um, you know, little things like that. I'm like, finally, you know, I, I'm I'm not the weird person who's like isolated anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I'm from New York City, so you know, I I have always been familiar with disabled people, but now becoming disabled has been just such a. Uh, I don't even know the word to describe it. There are so many words. Um, yeah.
1: Well, and it, it, it's funny. I was just, yeah. I was just in New York um, mm-hmm. in August, in August. Yeah. Um. And I had been to New York about 11 years before that. And I, I was telling everybody, everybody was like, Oh, New York, you know, cause I love LA. I, I'm hoping to move to LA the next year or two. Uh, cause I love it. was like, Oh, well, New York is just, you know, it's just like LA. Did you love it? And I was like, you know, New York is a fantastic city. I'm all, but if you're disabled, it's really hard to get from A to B there. Yeah, it is. It's extremely difficult. Yeah, and and it was funny because I was talking to to friends who live there, and I was like, you know, I'm like, I don't know how, you know, I could do this every day, you know, with the wheelchair. And they were like, you know, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, the sidewalks. I'm like, you know, or the streets and all, you know, things are just really uneven. You know, one minute you're moving along smoothly and then all of a sudden you like ram right into a little piece of uneven ground. Although you weren't even like looking at they were like, Oh yeah, now that you bring that up, you know, the streets are really uneven. I'm like, Yeah, I know. You try having four wheels attached to you and trying to do that.
0: <laughs> oh. All right, Kristen. Thank you so much for this interview. It was oh, great. no problem.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Sorry. Yeah. And I'll be sure to, to listen out and, you know, give you, give you um, props. And I hope you make it to the AFI Festival.
1: Yes, I, I will be there. The question is how, how in debt will I be when I come back? So um, uh, I'm, almost, I'm almost halfway to my goal. So I'm hoping I got another week or two. Two okay. weeks. Two weeks, yeah. Okay. So I'm hoping, I'm hopeful. But yeah, let me know when the episode is up and I will spam it to everybody.
0: <laughs>
1: okay, I'm hoping I'll get it out by uh, the 30th, the 30th. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Yes, you said, just tag me in it when it's uh, live, and I will let everybody know. Definitely, definitely. Okay. Thank thanks. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye.